You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who wears sunglasses everywhere because Silicon Valley is too white to look at with a naked eye. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know around tech and beyond. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair, I'm really pleased to have Franklin Leonard, the founder of the hugely influential The Blacklist. It's an annual survey of the screenplays that are most admired in Hollywood, but which have not yet been produced. Many movies that he and his colleagues have highlighted on The Blacklist have gone on to be beloved films, including I, Tanya, Spotlight, Jojo Rabbit, and A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. He also recently wrote an op-ed for The Washington Post about the lack of diversity among the 2020 Oscar nominees, so we'll want to talk about that, too. Franklin, welcome to Rico Decode. Uh, thank you for having me. So I, there's a lot of things I want to talk to you about. I, I want to first, because you've made The Blacklist into a business now, so I want to talk I about have. that. But talk a little bit about your background in terms of making it. Explain what it is for people who don't understand and how it gives you sort of give us a glimpse into how Hollywood works and how screenplays yeah. are made. So I came to Hollywood uh, after a brief stint as an analyst at McKinsey and Company, mm-hmm. um, my great shame. And, um, <laughs> and, and is it Pete Buttigieg? It is what it is. Uh, we did not overlap, okay. but, um, but we, we know a fair number of people in common. Okay. Um, but I, um, you know, I found myself about two years in as a junior executive at Leonardo DiCaprio's production company. Mm-hmm. And my job was to find good screenplays and good screenwriting that I could pass up to my bosses and say, hey, either we should make this or we should be in business with this person. Mm -hmm. And, you know, by virtue of working with Leo, who at the time, this was right after The Aviator, you know, he's the biggest movie star in the world, arguably. Mm -hmm. He's also a white male between the ages of 25 and 40. We were seeing everything. I was getting constant Mm -hmm. phone calls from agents of all stripes because they knew that if Leo liked the script, they had to go movie. Right. Most of the things that I was reading were mediocre to bad because right. writing a Can good, I just add, but yeah. every, a lot of stars create production agencies just so for, this is yeah, not a, 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 Yeah, it's not unusual. So it's not just to be, for them to be in it oh, often they are like Reese that's Witherspoon. Right. Absolutely. But it's also to create and produce them. Absolutely. But so, often with them because that's the pull. That's exactly right. So sometimes it would be things that it was, hey, Leo should star in this and we should produce it or it was something that Leo, I thought he might be interested in but that he wouldn't star in because there wasn't a natural role for him but the company mm. would produce it right, and he right. could use Pitt his power this, to, kinds. yeah, Pitt does an extraordinary job with it, actually. Right, with Plan B, right? Plan, plan B. B. Um, so most of the stuff that I was reading was mediocre to bad, and my mm-hmm. job was to find good stuff, and it was frustrating week over week to sort of take a banker's box full of scripts home, this is pre-iPad and mm-hmm. Kindle and all the things we read on now, and then come back and have my, ba- my boss ask me, 
anything that I should read, and I'd have to say no, because I'm not going to waste his time with something that wasn't worth it. And, you know, you do that enough weeks, and my mother's weekly phone call asking me if my LSAT scores were still valid, like I knew (laughs) that I needed to come up with a solution. And uh, so one night late in November, I was in my office, and I was like, you know what? How would I solve this problem if I was at McKinsey? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I took a survey of all of my peers that I'd had breakfast, lunch, dinner, or drinks with that year um, and asked them a very simple question. You know, send me a list of up to 10 of your favorite screenplays that you found out about this year that won't be in theaters by the end of this year and that you love. Um, and everybody participated. It was about 93 people. I ran everything through a pivot table, output it to PowerPoint, and sent it back out under the quasi-subversive name The Blacklist. Mm-hmm. And I went on vacation. Explain the history of The Blacklist. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a dual reference. It's, yeah. a, it's a sort of an honor of all of the writers who lost their careers uh, due to the McCarthy era, mm-hmm. um, and a conscious inversion of this notion that black somehow connotes something negative. Right. You know, I grew up in West Central Georgia. I remember sitting in fifth grade and, le- and learning about color symbolism in literature. The cowboy with the white hat is definitely the good guy. The cowboy with the black hat is the bad guy. Mm-hmm. And I remember Same thing thinking, in tech, black hats, white hats. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I remember thinking, like, inductively, I don't really like where this is going mm-hmm. as a black person sort of learning about sure. this. So I look for ways to play with language uh, mm-hmm. whenever the opportunity presents itself. So it was a dual reference, and I sent it out. And um, I didn't really think much of it. And then I came back from vacation having read a lot of these scripts and realizing that a lot of them were good, and it had been forwarded back to me like 75 times. Um, and I think it's important sort of for temporal references. The, the, the blacklist went out to the industry uh, the weekend that Lazy Sunday, the Saturday Night Live sketch happened Mm -hmm. and sort of exploded on the internet. And I always reference that because it was the first time I was aware of a television network like taking down these videos from the internet. NBC went around. Exactly. Everybody loved it, so NBC took it down. Exactly. And I remember saying, oh, something interesting is happening here. And then I checked my email when I got back from vacation and this list had been forwarded back to me like 75 times. I had done it anonymously. This is via email. This is all via email. So, um... You know, and so over the first three months, I, I just didn't tell anybody that I had done it because I was terrified that I had violated some unwritten rule of Hollywood and that surely other people had had this idea, hadn't done it for a reason, but I was too dumb to realize that, you know, you don't do that. Right. And then about six months into, this is 2006 now, I get a phone call from an agent pitching me on a client script. And it was the same call I got like every Tuesday from somebody. Like, mm-hmm. I have Leo's next movie. You should read it immediately. I also sent it to Brad Pitt's company. So Just stay on top of this. Just keep creating security, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, um, but this person ended the call in a way that sort of blew my mind. He was like, look, don't tell anybody, but I have it on really good authority. This is going to be number one on next year's blacklist. Ah. Which was fascinating because I had decided not to do it again. Mm-hmm. And even if I was, it's a survey. So like, right. you stack you, rank them. You stack rank. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So how do you know what's going to be number one on the list six months out? Like, right. you just don't. Uh, but it made me realize that this thing that I created had significant value beyond helping me find good screenplays. You right. know, it was initially a selfish endeavor to solve a People problem for myself. People wanted to be top on the blacklist. Exactly. Um, and, and this agent was selling his client with the speculative nature, the speculative notion that it might be on this thing the next year. Mm-hmm. So I did it again the next year. Uh, the LA Times outed me as the person who had created it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the following year, uh, Juno and Lars and the Real Girl were nominated for Best Original Screenplay. These were all in the original. They were number two and number three on the first list. And then mm-hmm. Juno won. And I think that was sort of an inflection point because it made people say, huh. These weird scripts on this list, if you make them and make them well, you make money and win awards, which, Mm -hmm. you know, the two primary drivers of any behavior in Hollywood. 
And that began a process of every year when we put the list out, you know, everyone reads most of the scripts on the list and and it sort of shifts the demand curve for them. And, you know, it's a bit of a virtuous cycle because of that. But, you know, you look at the numbers, there have been about 1,200 scripts on the list in, in 14 years. A third of them have been produced, 50 Oscar wins from 275 nominations, four of the last 12 best pictures, 10 of the last 24 screenwriting Oscars, Jojo Rabbit, and it's a, um, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood in contention this year. And I think it's important that when I cite those numbers, like, I didn't make those movies. I didn't mm-hmm. do craft service on those movies. Right. I, I don't get to take credit for the accomplishment of the artists that made them. What I think I can take credit for is creating this system whereby the industry recognizes the value of these things and makes it and catalyzes right, well, them into about the creation. value because the way yeah. it's done is completely anecdotal and completely relationship based and just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't the way movies get made it's just it, it, it's it's sort of a scratch your back system like it, Entirely. It, so that you're trying to correct for a, a flawed system of how movies get made. Absolutely correct. So talk about that, how it it typically works. Yeah, I mean, the way it typically works is you have a a group of agencies that by and large control most material. Mm -hmm. Um, If it's an original piece of material that comes from a writer they represent, the writer then will tell their agent, hey, I have this script. And the agency will typically take it to their clients and Mm -hmm. try to package it up and then sell it to a financier or studio who will then make it. Mm -hmm. Um, But all of those things are sort of driven by who do you have a relationship with? Who can you put yes. the script in front of? Can you convince this person that it's really exciting? And if you can package it up into something, you may have momentum to then get it made. But that momentum may be entirely unrelated to it's the quality, quality of the script or even the quality right. of the package around the right. script. Right. And, it, of course, the quality of the script is where it all starts because storytelling is where everything starts. I, I could not agree more. And, and really the fundamental premise of the work that we do is, uh, you know, screenwriters are terribly undervalued in Hollywood mm-hmm. given their relative contribution to the success and failure of the things that we all make. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit better in TV, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, you know, that continues to be the case, and I think it's been the case for a very long time. And I think that the blacklist, to some extent, lays bare the fact that if you take great scripts and make them into movies, you have a better chance of, of delivering a financial return. And, and amazingly enough, Harvard Business School did a study last year looking at the last 15 years of Hollywood results in the blacklist in particular and concluded that movies made from scripts on the blacklist, controlling for every other factor, make mm-hmm. 90% more in revenue than movies not made from blacklist scripts. So why hasn't Hollywood applied really, you know, it's not scientific, it's more McKinsey kind of principles. Because, yeah. you know, people, for years there was like, oh, Stinks on a Plane is going to be a great movie because it's the top search on right. Google and stuff like that. Yeah. They've always been trying to find sort of that kind of advantage of yeah. what works. But one of the things is movies get pushed down, scripts get pushed down, mm-hmm. and they don't get found correctly. They're lights under bushels, presumably. Why do you think that it works here in this case? Because you were getting input from people you think have taste, correct? Um, well, not specifically. Mm-hmm. I'm surveying now. I, so after Leo... So tell me what you did. So you did yeah. this, and then so, you, you worked at a lot of production companies, I did. Too. So after I worked for Leo, I went to go work for Sidney Pollack and Anthony Minghella uh, mm-hmm. for a year, and, and they both died while I was working for them. Mm. Um, and then went to Universal Pictures and sort of had the experience of working at a studio. How was that? Um, I learned a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned a lot both about sort of uh, how movies get made and how I didn't think it was wise to make movies. Um, And then I worked for Will Smith's company for two years, and that's sort of when I began to develop the blacklist into a business. But what I realized fundamentally is is that 
Uh, I think the industry has gotten away to some extent from prioritizing is the script good as mm-hmm. the primary driver of whether you make the movie um, and into all these things like is is the genre right? Do we have the right actor? Um, you know, can we sell these actors in foreign territories? And there's a lot of conventional wisdom about what works and what doesn't. And right. what I've you know, sort of concluded is that most of that conventional wisdom is all convention and no wisdom. Right. It's but a little the, like Moneyball. Uh, yeah. Remember. Yeah, 100%. And, and I was a big fan of, of the book, and I was a, big, a, a sort of weirdly obsessed uh, baseball statistics kid uh, mm-hmm. as a kid. Um, and It's not weird. Lots of people are. Uh, I hope you're right. Did you like maps, too? uh, Still love maps. Yeah, so you should have been working on the internet. (laughs) Uh, Maybe. If you query every internet purse top mogul, they're all map and statistics obsessed. I mean, then I might have made a terribly wrong decision somewhere (laughs) along the line. You could have been a billionaire right now. You know, there's still time. Um, But I, I think that... Look, the people who have endured what they have to endure to get into the big chairs in this business have mm-hmm. no incentive to make radical change to no. how the business functions. 100%. And I think that it's unfortunate because there's an opportunity. Um, I mean, it's unfortunate from a cultural perspective. It might be fortunate for me because there is an opportunity here. Uh, there's a sort of market inefficiency that can allow you to embrace a strategy of find great material, make it. And you may even be able to beat the market by doing that. That, like, that might be a viable strategy to invest in film by identifying great screenplays and then pulling the trigger curious, based on that. Why didn't you keep it to yourself? Um, well, you know, again, because I didn't think Because this gonna... would be your advantage, right? I mean, right. everybody's looking for their strategic advantage here. And they do that in hedge funds. Absolutely. They do that on Wall Street. They're, Absolutely. I mean, they're mathematical advantage. I have this this formula, I have this algorithm yeah. to, in order to invest. I think that— It's applied uh, everywhere else. I think that it— I didn't because I wasn't trying to create a thing when I first created it. I mm-hmm. was trying to to get some information that would help me in my job, and it right. only seemed fair that if people were providing me information, I share that information with them. Sure. I think the competitive advantage that I have now mm-hmm. is that I have a fundamental belief in the value of a great screenplay and mm-hmm. a fundamental trust in these processes and in aiding and identifying them. Mm-hmm. But again, I also think that you know there's there's a lot of talk about AI and the mm-hmm. ability to sort of use technology to identify material, and I, I don't. I'm not terribly sanguine about the value of a purely technological approach to evaluating art. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm much more interested in trying to aggregate large numbers of human responses to art right, right. and then use the data that that creates as a way to sort of identify things that have, a, from a probabilistic perspective, right. a greater chance of success. So the computer doesn't pick it. Humans pick it and the computer sorts it out. That perfectly said. Right. I may steal that. So you please do. It's how AI should work, actually. You know, I, you think I about radiology and a computer should look at all the radio, all those, yeah. all the pictures you take of people's lungs and then a doctor should and then lift well, things up and then... One would hope. One would hope. Um, well, it's going that way. It's all, they're already doing that, sure. just so you know. Um, so you decided to make it into a business. And when we yeah. get back, we'll talk a little more. But explain very quickly for this ending out of the session what you how you decided as a business. What is the business? That I mean, you, the, you created an annual blacklist, right? There's the annual blacklist survey, which remains exactly the same as it's always right. been. We survey 700 people about their favorite 10 unproduced screenplays, and then we share and you the pick aggregate those, list. That changes over time who you pick, correct? Uh, well, it's it's literally at this point, every executive at every major studio, film financier, or production company was a first look deal with any of those financing okay. entities. Right. So <laughs> it, it is a aggregate it's look everybody. at all of the gatekeepers that could conceivably make your movie in the mm-hmm. mainline sort of traditional system. 
And then by 2010, this notion of a once yearly survey that circulated via email was adorable, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah. to go from, you know, lazy Sunday to 2010 is an epic in internet time. Right. So um, I wanted to build something that could solve the problem. Again, a problem for me, which was how do I find a great comedy in March, not mm-hmm. in December? Right. And, um, you know, with the help of, of a friend of mine, Dino Simone, we built a two-sided marketplace that would allow um, anyone on earth who had written a good screenplay to upload that script for a small fee, um, pay to have the script evaluated by one of our readers that we hired. Mm -hmm. And if the script was good, we would tell everybody in the industry, hey, this is a really good script. You should do something with it. Mm -hmm. Uh, We launched that in October of 2012. The first writer to be discovered by it and signed with the major agency signed just after Thanksgiving in 2012. Mm -hmm. Ironically enough, with a script about Eugene McCarthy, Mm -hmm. I was pretty sure it was a practical joke when it first came through the system. (laughs) And we've really sort of seen that be the case over the last seven years. You know, we've seen over 70,000 screenplays, done more than 140,000 script evaluations, um, and we've seen literally hundreds of writers sort of move into the system, um, many of whom have gotten other movies made, some movies have gotten made via being discovered on the Blacklist website, um, including Nightingale, the first movie that was produced was nominated for a Golden Globe and two Emmys, starring mm-hmm. David Yellowo. And yeah, and, and you know, we've created a marketplace whereby if you have the talent, you can have a future as a working Hollywood screenwriter. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter who you know. It doesn't matter what you look like or how old you are or your sexual preference or your sexual mm-hmm. presentation. Mm-hmm. It's more meritocratic than the industry has been historically. Right. So, well, I, which I, I constantly repeat myself, but I always, and I use it in terms of Silicon Valley, it's a meritocracy, not a meritocracy That's, in most places. Uh, same thing is true in Hollywood. Oh, same thing is true is everywhere yeah, you Also go. true. Yeah, <laughs> everywhere you go. And one of the things that's interesting about this is they, you're sort of doing a favor for these production companies, right? You're trying to yeah. help them. Do you charge them? Uh, no. And we, we chose not to because we wanted to make sure that we have as many eyeballs from the industry mm-hmm. on the work of people who are paying to submit. Right. Um, it's the same reason, for example, where we didn't sort of set our prices as high as we could have. Mm-hmm. If you're an aspiring screenwriter, whether you live in L.A. or anywhere else— you probably don't have a ton of money to get your work considered. So when Mm -hmm. we set the prices, we set them as low as we possibly could to sustain me as a full-time job, Dean Mm -hmm. as a full-time job, and hire a bit of staff to try to grow additional things. We were never going to get rich helping screenwriters get to Hollywood. Um, If there's a way for us to get rich doing the work that we do, it's by investing in the films that we identify, and Mm -hmm. that's sort of my process. That you will find them. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, the Harvard Business School study makes a strong argument. I think we have a number of films in, in, in development and soon to be in production right now that will continue to make that argument. But I'm very confident that if I had a film fund, mm-hmm. I could make a series of investments that would put anybody who is participating in it at all the major festivals with the uh, admiration of their peers mm-hmm. and deliver a pretty consistent return that, that beats the typical film. Well, you're kind of talking about venture capital. Fundamentally, yeah. Fundamentally. Yeah. All right. We're here with Franklin Leonard, the founder of The Blacklist. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI powered place. 
Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I'm here with Franklin Leonard, the founder of The Blacklist. We're talking about his, he started out with an annual survey of screenplays that are most admired in Hollywood, and now he's turned it into a business. One of the things I'm curious about when you are doing this service for screenwriters, you're getting them all across the world. Yeah. Talk about diversity in that, because you're see, cause yeah. a lot of these, like you said, there's so many gatekeepers, and, mm-hmm. and they, they sort of do, you know, suddenly it's all Judd Apatow and his friends right. or whoever. You know, yeah. fine, some of them make great movies, but mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's an insider club. Yeah. Um, and that's what they've created, a series of insider clubs, whatever group you're with. Yeah. You know, Ava DuVernay has her people. Everybody Absolutely. has their groups. Is there any other way to do this, and can you? how do you get more diverse viewpoints or more diverse scripts? Well, the way we've done it is by trying to reduce the barriers to entry as much as possible and making mm-hmm. the thing that matters the script and not who you know. Um, you know, the, part of the reason why the Blacklist website exists is exactly this problem. Mm-hmm. You know, I would go speak at, at Sundance or at film schools after the annual Blacklist became a thing, and the first question that would be asked of me was, you know, I don't know anyone in the industry. I I like. I don't, I don't have a way in, but I think I've written something pretty good. Like, how do I get my script to someone who can then get it on the blacklist? Mm-hmm. And there was no really good answer. And I would come back from those sort of speaking gigs and, and seek out people who had been in the industry longer than I had and say, like, what is the solution? Surely there is an efficient process to identify talent that will benefit the entire ecosystem. Sure. And the answers that I got were profoundly dissatisfying. It was, mm-hmm. you know, enter the Nickel Fellowship, which is the Academy Screenwriting Competition. They get about okay. 7,000 scripts every year. And if you place in the top 100, someone will— And that's will, also right. done by a group of people who knows, right? Exactly. And, if, you know, if they place in the top 100, someone will probably call you. Right. And the other option was, you know, just move to L.A. and get a job at Starbucks and sort of network until someone wants Hand to read your script. script right? And that's fine if, you know, mommy and daddy can pay your lease on your, you know, BMW and, like, cover your rent. Mm-hmm. But if you're a single mother on the south side of Chicago or a suburban dad in Charlotte, North Carolina, like, if your kids come home from school and you're like, load up the minivan, we're moving to L.A., you're probably a terrible parent. <laughs> but it doesn't mean you can't write. And, yeah. and, and all things equal, I will read a script from someone who has that reality day to day over mm-hmm. somebody whose parents are paying for them to live in L.A. and figure it out. So we wanted to create something that anybody, if they were talented, could be discovered. Um, And then we've been really rigorous about looking at the numbers, the scores on the scripts, sort of where those things are coming from. And what we found is, shockingly, there's no uh, no demographic has a exclusive sort oh, of right to talent. Um, in White fact, guys aren't smarter. What? Sh- it's shocking. I know. What? I know. It's terribly shocking. Uh, um, in fact, the, the the most fascinating statistic there is if you look at the distribution of scores mm-hmm. by gender in particular, uh, they're virtually identical. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a pretty standard uh, you know uh, Gaussian curve, the mean around five point yeah. five, with one exception, mm-hmm. and that is at the very bottom of the scale. So the worst scripts. Mm-hmm. Women just fall off. Mm-hmm. Women are not submitting, on average, bad screenplays to our right. site. Uh-huh. And that didn't come as a surprise to me because women know they're not going to get a second chance. So when they write a script and they decide to sort of take a step forward, they've done everything they possibly can right. to make sure it's as good as it can be. Whereas we have a lot of guys who, you know, type fade out, send it, get a bad review, and then send, you know, abusive emails for six consecutive days Mm -hmm. uh, because they're certain that their script is genius because of Mm -hmm. where they went to college or someone told them that they're they're a brilliant writer. It's a real disease. (laughs) I mean— I have two sons, and one time my son wrote an essay, and 
he didn't work very hard on it. It just wasn't good. And he's like, what do you think? I said, this sucks. And he goes, yeah, but it's okay. And I'm like, what? I said, no, it's terrible. You didn't try. This isn't very good. And he goes, "Eh, it's okay. And I'm like, what is in your friggin' DNA that you think it's okay to suck? Like, it was really fascinating. It was sort of this comfort in the world that, you know, I can, I can, I can punt it, and it was it'll be fine. I think most of us doesn't do that anymore. I would imagine that you got him right pretty quickly. Yeah, Um, yeah. I think for most of us who didn't grow up in that way, we know that we have to be twice as good to get half as far. And mm-hmm. so we're, we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're always going to step up because we don't really have any other choice. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, the fun consequence of that is that if you look at the mean scores for we'll women versus men. talk a little bit about men, the scores. Yeah. On the, so um, men versus women are pretty much uh, equal. Well, no, but because the bottom falls out for women because they're not submitting as bad scripts, in every genre, women have a higher mean score than men. Oh, okay, all right. Um, okay, which is just sort of shit. amusing to me uh, right. conceptually, and it's always right. a fun thing for me to point out, especially with the audience. Maybe you could add that men. into the algorithm. Uh, men uh, will submit sucky scripts, so give them a little lift. Uh, give you know, them a little lift. A little affirmative action is good for right. everybody. Yeah, yeah. So what else? What else do you see in um, these? Well, I mean, the main thing that we see is that, you know, uh, who you are or what demographic group you're a part of has no direct correlation to your talent, mm-hmm. which is, you know, again, unsurprising. I don't think that any reasonable person believes that any group has a sort of exclusive, uh, you know, control of talent in any artistic endeavor. But if you look at sort of what Hollywood makes and who makes it, you may come to that conclusion. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just not true. Um, and I think it reflects a profound bias in a lot of the decision-making that happens in the industry to the industry's detriment. Um, mm-hmm. you yes. know, my whole thing is, look, diversity is really good morally and ethically, and it's particularly true in an industry that sort of projects images 40 feet high around the world disproportionately and defines sort of how we see ourselves and how we see each other. But it's also good financially. Yes. Um, and so Appeal I don't need to, to their greed, frankly. Well, look, I don't need you I to do the right thing for the wrong reasons, mm-hmm. or I don't need you to do the right thing for the right reasons. Just do the right thing, even if it's for the wrong reasons. Let's all get rich at a minimum. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then, you know, as you spend more time with people that don't look like you, you're probably going to realize that they're all we're all pretty much the same on a sort of fundamental level. Mm-hmm. Like, I know it sounds very earnest, yeah, but, it like, it's, but, it's, but it's true. It's interesting because in study after study shows that a more diverse technology group of people do better. And they give, give more money across the board and yeah. all these companies. And you can't even—at some point, I'm like, you can't even appeal to their greed. What is wrong? Like, you know I mean, what I mean? I think we know what's wrong. Well, yes, but <laughs> you can't even appeal to their greed. Right. Right. But, it, but, it, but I think it goes to just how deep the problem is. Well, I often say they're like, you, you shouldn't do it just because it's the right thing. I'm like, well, why not? Because the right <laughs> thing is the right thing. Like, okay, but like, yeah. let, let's go to the money, and yeah. then that's it's the like right. You can't thing. do it for the wrong, for the right reasons. Do it yeah. for the wrong. So ones. when you have when you're doing this, so these scripts they don't come down anyway, and the people who you have reading them, yeah, are a diverse group of people. Um, what, what, I would say they're more diverse than Hollywood, but less diverse than the United States. Right. And, and okay. that's you know, look, it's obviously a priority for me as a black guy from Georgia. Like, right. I'm acutely aware of the consequences of that. But I would also say that we are very diligent about seeking out bias if we find it in our readers. Mm-hmm. And I also think that, you know, my readers know who they're working for. And mm-hmm. so when I say zero tolerance, they know that there's not going to be any sort of give if they read something and provide feedback that suggests any sort of bias whatsoever. Right. Which is hard to get out. Everybody has bias. Everybody has bias. I, I just, I want to make sure that our readers uh, don't have enough bias that it will negatively impact uh, the people they who are paying for a service. Um, well, a lot of the scripts end up being read more than once. And right. so we're able to sort of compare people's responses to things based on gender and race and any number of other factors to try to get to, is the something truth. happening here that's There's not something true. Because people are going to think 
certain things are good and certain things aren't. Well, I good. think that's the other thing is like fundamentally, this is a subjective medium, right? Mm-hmm. There are like you know one person's trash is another person's treasure, and that mm-hmm. doesn't mean that you have a uh, sort of racial or gender bias against something. It might just mean that you don't like the story right. for whatever right. reason. And this is another reason why we don't present mean scores on the website. We mm-hmm. present the distribution because mm-hmm. I'm going to be more interested in a script that has a lot of high scores and a lot of low scores than mm-hmm. one that just sort of delivers an average score every single time. Sure, it's interesting. It is interesting. I cannot get my children, my sons, to go to Little Women ever, no matter what I do. I really try. Good, I get though. them to almost everything. I know it's a good movie. It's I was really like, good it's, good. Yeah. it's good. It's good. I get them to go to most things, but this one, for some reason, I can't get them to do it, even though it's a very good movie. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to appeal to them. So, do you ever think about bringing computers in to do this? AI? Do you imagine that being a day? Um, I don't. I, I think yeah. that, look, I, I, I have faith in AI about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, Such as? You know, Especially in, in content. Where do you have faith well, in Well, in content, I'm not sure that I do, and that's sort of mm-hmm. what I was getting to, right? right? Like, I think that a computer is always going to be better at chess than the best human being. Mm-hmm. But I think that, you know, when it comes to putting words in a certain order to elicit an emotional response, I don't foresee in my lifetime a computer being able to write the works of Shakespeare no matter how well that machine learning happens. Mm-hmm. And I think, and, and part of that is because, you know, we as human beings from birth are trying to communicate ideas to elicit a reaction or to communicate. And we've all been training on how to tell stories mm-hmm. from, you know, literally uh, right. the day we're born. And the best amongst us who do that mm-hmm. are doing something, in my mind, infinitely more complicated than sort of the best chess computer. And also in terms of testing for the human reaction, I don't know that we can test for an emotional reaction with AI. And, and look, Maybe I'll be proven wrong, but Mm -hmm. it's a marker I'm willing to put down. All right. So you'd go through these movies, and you want to then have first dibs at producing some of them or the ones that strike your fancy Uh, particularly. I would would like to be able to have the opportunity to finance and produce these things, but I'm not willing to claim first dibs. So so how do you do that? So so this is the second part of your business then? So um, we have a lot of we we have, we, have, we also do a bunch of incubation stuff with these scripts. So we have three screenwriters labs, two of them with women in film, specifically mm-hmm. for women. Mm-hmm. We have live script readings that we do on stage, and we have a podcast that we're bringing back where we'll do sort of radio plays for the podcast generation with a lot of these scripts. And it's a great idea. Uh, we think so. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Um, and. Um, but yeah, we're producing movies now. Um, the first of which uh, premiered at South by Southwest uh, last year. We have another one that's in post production right now with Allison Janney, Mila Kunis, Regina Hall, Golden Globe winner Aquafina, um, and a bunch of other folks. Um, also robbed. But go ahead. Uh, I do we'll not. Get to that I do not disagree. We will get to that. Um, next. And um, but yeah, so you know, look, I'm not going to claim first dibs. If we help a writer get identified, um, and they want to take their movie to someone else, that is their right. Mm-hmm. But I will go to them and say, hey, we love your script. We are a pro-writer company, and we want to keep you involved in the process because you saw the movie in your head before anybody else, and so why would we not keep you involved? And we also have this reputation and these relationships that can help your movie get made. Would you like us to come and be involved? And, you know, generally speaking, people are very excited about that opportunity. But I, I think it would be poor form uh, for me to say, well, we helped you, so now you owe me. Right. That's just for Trump to do around Apple, for example. That's for a lot of people to do, unfortunately. It's, <laughs> yeah. just, it's just not how no. I roll. He just did a tweet the other day. We helped you now unlock the iPhone. Oh, that's right. <laughs> what the fuck? 
I mean, every day. Every day. Every we, day. we don't need to get into yeah. that right now. But so then this is your business in this. And, and you do you hope to do shorter blacklists or so, different blacklists for oh, different? It's a great question. So yeah. this past year, actually, we started partnering with a number of affinity groups, uh, the first right. of which was GLAD, to do uh, lists that are specifically targeted towards underrepresented communities. So we mm-hmm. did a, we've done two GLAD lists now. We'll announce another one at Sundance this year. We did a Latinx list with a number of uh, Latinx affinity groups. Uh, we did an um, Asian Pacific Islander list with an organization called CAPE, and uh, a disability list uh, with Easter Seals and the Media Access Awards. Mm-hmm. So again, you know, we found a lot of success in creating these lists under our brand and saying, hey, everybody, these are really good. You should pay attention to them. Um, and because of the credibility that I think we've accreted over time, people do pay attention to them, and it makes it more likely that these things get made. Okay. When we get back, we're going to talk about that issue of how thing, these things get made. You, uh, uh, Franklin just recently wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post about the lack of diversity among 2020 Oscar nominees, yep. which is appalling once again, but no surprise. Yep. Uh, we're going to talk about that when we get back. We're here with Franklin Leonard. He is the founder of the hugely influential Blacklist, a survey of annual survey of screenplays that are most admired in Hollywood but would have not been produced. Uh, all kinds of movies have been made from that list, and people read it to figure out where to find source material. But one of the problems is this source material doesn't often get made because it's not within the bigger system. You wrote this op-ed in the Washington Post about the lack of diversity among the 2020 Oscar nominees, which yeah. is sort of a reflection of this. Whatever you think of awards. Yeah. People pay attention to them here in Hollywood. Look, I think the reason why Oscar's So White matters— That's and, what and Oscar's So White. Credit to April Rain, who created the hashtag. That is a good hashtag, um, isn't it? It's really economical. It, but like, it works. It, it's not about the Oscars per se. Like, mm-hmm. if you think that the reason why we're having this conversation is because it's really important to me that Lupita gets another statue, mm-hmm. like, I'd like to see that, and mm-hmm. she frankly— I'd probably deserve one for us, but that's not why we're doing it. I mm-hmm. think Oscars So White and the conversation around the Oscars is just the time of the year when the industry is most visible. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot easier to understand no women were nominated uh, in the it's best Oscars director so white category. Oscars So White and Oscars So Male. Yeah, it, 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 and Oscars So White, to be clear, is not Oscars Not Black. It's not Oscars, you know. Right. It, it is every—Oscars So White is an economical way to communicate— all of these groups that are historically underrepresented. So mm-hmm. it's a lot easier to, to talk about that and the mm-hmm. fact that there's only been one female directing nominee in the last decade. Right. And only one winner ever. Nominee. One nominee in the last decade. Just one winner. Let that sink in. One ever. nominee. It's not, you know, and of course, they'll, they, they, the other, it's, it's, one of them said, you know, when there's a Marsha Zuckerberg, I was like, they don't get funded. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It, there's it, not going to be one. I also think it's not. A coincidence that the only woman to win the Best Director Award ever, Catherine mm-hmm. Bigelow, made mm-hmm. her name by directing these big, badass action movies. Right. But I think it's a lot easier to understand no women direct nominated as director, no actors of color nominated in the acting category than it is 90% of the studio movies are directed by men, mm-hmm. right? You know, women disproportionately get, I think it's 50% less funding for probably sure. the same project. That's a lot more difficult and complex a dynamic to communicate than Y'all can't even recognize the best of this stuff as being good. Mm-hmm. How deep do those problems go? And they mm-hmm. run very, very deep. Mm-hmm. So to explain for people who aren't following this, yeah. what happened in this year's Oscars and what you wrote about? Yeah, so um, this year's Oscar nominees uh, in the acting category, there were 19 white actors and um, Cynthia Erivo nominated mm-hmm. for Harriet. Uh, and yet again this year, I think 
you know, other than Greta's nomination for Lady Bird, uh, no women nominated in the Best Director category. Mm-hmm. Um, including uh, Greta Gerwig for Little Women. Greta, including Greta Gerwig for Little Women. And, you know, it continues a, uh, a reality that's been the case as long as the Academy has existed of a general overlook of the extraordinary artistic contributions of women and people of color. Mm-hmm. So your piece... Yeah. Imagined. Explain mm-hmm. what you wrote. Yeah, so I I wrote um I wrote the article that would exist if the circumstances were reversed. If mm-hmm. there if there had been a long period of no white acting nominees and mm-hmm. only female uh, directing nominees, and it and it was it was sort of designed. It was designed to be satire, Mm -hmm. but it was really just, it was designed also to to make a list of these overlooked performances that people should check out uh, Mm -hmm. if they were like, well, I didn't see anything that was great from Mm -hmm. any of these communities. It's well, Mm -hmm. because you didn't look. Here's a list of all of them. Put them on your, uh, put it on your to-do list and check them all out because they're all exceptional. But it also was designed to, if you were reading this and saying, oh my God, it's so ridiculous, I can't even imagine it. That's how far we are from that reality. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was a much better way to to sort of lay bare the depth of the problem mm-hmm. uh, without being ragey about it. Because right. um, I, I, I find that argumentation is a lot more successful if you can entertain along with right. it, which is probably right. why I work in film. Right. Ragey is fine, by the way. I mean, I, look, anybody who follows me on Twitter probably sees a little <laughs> bit of that from time to time. Yeah, but you're funny. I try to... I, I, you do I good think, Twitter, by the way. You know, oh, thank you very much. Um... If you, get, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you make it taste good, the medicine goes down a lot easier. All right. So what is the reason for this? Because it, mm. it literally happens. At some point, you're like, this is just the fix is in on some level. But what, what do you think systemically is the problem? I mean, the short answer is racism and sexism yes, and, the inter- yes. and the intersection of the two. Right. But I'm also not saying that any individual is necessarily racist, though obviously, like, we all have the same sort of biases that Mm -hmm. that the world has. And arguably, uh, the industry is sort of a bouillon cube of all of those things, because at the end of the day, we're trying to make content that then we try to sell to everyone in the world. Mm -hmm. But I think the problem problem is manifold. On the directing front, it's, it's harder for women to get representatives as directors. It's harder for them to get financing for movies. It is harder when they make movies for them to get the marketing budgets that they need in order to have them be successful. And then even when they make things extraordinary as like Portrait of a Lady on Fire or things like that, many of the Academy members aren't even watching these films. Uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire is one of the best-reviewed movies of the year. She is... Uh, you know, as a filmmaker or a god walking amongst mm-hmm. us. And I would bet that fewer than 50% of these Academy voters have seen the film. Mm-hmm. And that's unfortunate. And I think that, again, there are all of these biases about what we think of as valuable, what we think of as an Oscar movie. And those have been traditionally these big canvas sort of masculine uh, movies about violence and war. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that movies like 1917 aren't extraordinary, but I would like for the industry and, and for people that are making content to be able to appreciate the extraordinary nature of something like 1917 mm-hmm. alongside the extraordinary, extraordinary nature of Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And it's interesting because I think that most of the people who who are of color or women have been trained to do that. We we when we mm-hmm. watch movies, we have the ability to, to recognize the Good, common goodness. humanity that we yeah. have with those characters. Mm-hmm. But if you've seen everything in your life has been about you, it's a lot mm-hmm. harder for you to watch something like a D. Reese film or an Ava film and be like, oh yeah, I see myself in that black woman. Hundred percent. It's a really interesting dynamic that happens. Is the, is when a, a woman's film design, I think Little Women is actually doing very well. Correct? Oh, it is. Yeah, yeah. very well. Or uh, Black Panther or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone's like, oh, look, look, a movie with mostly African-American cast right. does well. Oh, it, what an unusual thing. And I'm yeah. like, 
They but always do well. They always do well when you make a good movie. When you make a good movie, they always do well. And so the same thing with Little I'm like, it's not a woman's movie necessarily. Yeah. In this case, perhaps that is a book that a lot of young women Absolutely. read. And that's, I think it's largely due to the book. I think a lot, yeah. of, lot of young men don't read that book um, or aren't made by their parents to right. read it. Um, it's a really interesting thing that it becomes, an ex- it reminds me a lot of when I bother Silicon Valley people. It's such a, it's such an interesting, like, mm-hmm. what gets created and who creates it is yep. really important. And when you, I go to boards, which I think there's plenty of uh, people of all kinds that can be on boards. You can start to argue about stamina of people right. that are trained, that are people of color or women in, in technology. You can do that. And you can, you can say, yes, there aren't as many as there right. are of white guys. But when you get to board level, you can't. You right. can't because yeah. there's plenty. And so one of the things I had an argument with the head of uh, Twitter about that, like how they had 10 white men on the board. And it, it was always like, well, you know, we have standards. And I was like, you didn't have yeah. standards. Like it only is brought up with women and people of color. You yeah. know, we, have well, because, we were making things that need to make money. I suppose that's the voice you hear here is uh, we got to abs- make some dough. Absolutely. People think that diversity is incompatib- incompatible yeah, somehow with, with quality, but with right. profitability or with quality even. Mm-hmm. And it's absurd. It's because their definition of quality is deeply flawed and mm-hmm. very narrow. And they just haven't exposed themselves to the quality that exists outside of their very narrow Community. Or you don't know what you could make. That's right. the whole thing. Like, well, I actually think that people in this town do know what they could make. They're mm-hmm. choosing not to make it. And, mm-hmm. and the reason is because they're imagining themselves in the theater as a 12-year-old boy mm-hmm. or as a 25-year-old man and saying, would I want to see this? Mm-hmm. And the fact of the matter is, is that most of the people who have the ability to greenlight something phenotypically look pretty much the same. And so right. they're making movies for a group that is phenotypically similar. The irony is... The money is el- is in different audiences. Mm-hmm. The Latinx community that speaks Spanish at the home, on mm-hmm. average, sees more movies per year than any other mm-hmm. demographic group in America. Second is Latinx folks who speak English in the home. Third right. is African Americans. And they don't necessarily want to see their, themselves either, necessarily. No, they, they right. don't. But but what we, what I think what we all want to see stories is a bunch of good story. stories well told. And reflected. we want the full flower of the diversity that right. we live in day to day to be available to us. And I think in that scenario, you have more competition because everybody's competing for the same opportunities and a better opportunity to make better movies and make more money. And that's to say nothing of the industry's like failed assumptions about what can sell abroad. I mean, right. I was told coming up, female-driven action doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Now, I have no idea where that assumption came from, mm-hmm. but I remember thinking to myself, well, Titanic's kind of female-driven action, mm-hmm. and that was the biggest movie of all time at the time. Right. Um, and then, obviously, like, Twilight showed up and Hunger Games showed up, and all of a sudden, everyone realizes, like, oh, my God, young women really do want to see themselves as sort of powerful right. and world-changing. Right. Well, Wonder Woman. Exactly. Wonder Woman just mm-hmm. is a great example. Or mm-hmm. you can't sell black people abroad. People outside of the U.S. don't want to see black people on screen, mm-hmm. which requires an assumption that— People will listen to black music, support black athletes, want to be a part of black culture, but somehow the movie Mm -hmm. as an idea, they're like, I don't know. And I remember when Black Panther came out, the big question on everybody's minds that first weekend was, can it make $100 million opening weekend? That would be amazing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my my tweets whenever a black movie comes out and people are like, well, this is the guess at the number, I would Mm -hmm. always like take the over because Mm -hmm. they always underestimate it. I think Black Panther made 240 in its first five days of release. And then it did incredibly well in China. And I was in Beijing last year and I was doing an interview and I was like, yeah, you know, a lot of people in Hollywood thought that Black Panther wouldn't do well in China. And and the interviewer said, well, it's crazy. It's a Marvel movie. Right. And, and they, it wasn't even about the race. Right, it was just, right. oh, it's a Marvel mm-hmm. movie. Yeah, and people was, are already second-guessing the situation. Exactly. So t- t- what, do, 
what happens? Do these tech companies coming in help you? They don't have much of a record on this issue, by the way. They don't. But they're not good at this, so maybe they'll I will not s- go along with the system. I will say two things. One, if they're smart, they will embrace diversity because there's a real market opportunity there. And I think that Netflix has sort of laid that bare to some extent. Mm-hmm. If you look at the fact that, I mean, there was a weekend this year, last year when they put out When They See Us and Always Be My Maybe on the same weekend. Mm-hmm. Can't think of a, another uh, sort of corporate content producer that put out a black limited series and an Asian romantic comedy in the mm-hmm. same weekend, much less the, or the same year for that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, so I, and I think that part of their business is being driven by that. And I suspect that that has to do with their approach to data where they're seeing the numbers that like, oh, a lot of people outside these communities like it, there's money to be made. So, you know, if they're doing the analysis, it should lead them towards greater diversity. And if they want to be successful, uh, they'd be wise to embrace it. But like you said, that sometimes even the, the greed doesn't overwhelm the right. bias. Right. Uh, and we end up in the situation that we're in the industry. So if you had a stack rank, blacklist, tech companies, what, which ones are you most help? Uh, Tech-oriented. Netflix would be a tech company in that, yeah, even though I it's a company. So. What would you? How would you stack rank the the companies that are now involved? Would be Amazon, Google, Facebook will be involved right. at some point. Uh, Netflix. Um, so what, what do we rank, what are we ranking them based in on? In terms of being good at this, that you think oh. would be good at. I feel like you might be getting me in trouble here. <laughs> um, Look, I think look, I think Netflix is way out in front. I think yeah. that's that's pretty They've done inar- a lot of laps. Uh, yeah, I mean that's pretty much inarguable at this point. I think that Amazon is doing a lot of interesting things mm-hmm. uh, from a sort of film and, and television series perspective. Um, you know, Apple's on the scene now. We'll see how it goes. I think it's probably too early to say, but very traditional. When you go for Jennifer Aniston, you're going for. Yeah, I mean, look, they went, they went for Jennifer Aniston. Show. It is a really good show, and I think it started slow, but by the end of that season, oh, I was HBO. actually I'm really sorry, impressed. And then, you know, AT&T. HBO Max, we'll see what happens. Um, yeah. But look, I, I think the reality is is that right now it's sort of Netflix and everyone else chasing. Um, and, and look, they had a massive head start. They executed well on their strategy. Um, and I think the real question for them is how do you curate amongst the insane amount of content that you have right. to make people keep coming back because they know they can find something that they don't want to watch rather than, you know, sort of jumping into an ocean of content, some of which is good and some of which is terrible. Right. Well, you have to make uh, choices. And then you're like, you know what, forget it, I'm going to go find something else. Right. Or an old movie or we'll jump onto Disney Plus because we know there's a we, Marvel movie there. Exactly. <laughs> which is, how, what, do you, what do you think about that rollout? I thought the rollout was pretty impressive. Yeah, um, finally. I'm a little biased because I have friends that, that are involved in it, but mm-hmm. I guess I have friends that are involved in all of these companies on some level. Um, but no, I actually thought it was really impressive. And I think that it's, look, they have a competitive advantage. They Like, Iger has built something truly Take remarkable. Take a long time in the internet space. It, for sure. But but you when, when you think about sort of where they were yes. 20 years ago, and yep. now they are Pixar, Marvel, Star Wars. 100%. Um, I think Bob Iger is one of the best executives around. I agree. And, and they've embraced and. branding right. in a way that I don't think the other companies have, right? Mm-hmm. People don't say, I'm going to go see a Paramount movie this weekend. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go see an HBO movie this weekend. They may say that about yeah, television shows. You may say about but HBO. I think Disney and A24 are, for me, the companies that their their company name means something and you know, generally speaking, what you're going to get, mm-hmm. even if it could be something wildly different. Mm-hmm. You, you know generally like, okay, this is what I'm in for with that kind well, of movie. It used to be Weinstein, right? Of course. I mean, yeah. Oh, well. Goodbye, Harvey. Bye-bye. Enjoy enjoy jail. Bye-bye. Anyway, Franklin, last question. What movie would you like to make of the black, that's on the black, of of the ones that that never got made? 
Was there um, anyone that you were like, this is the greatest script I ever read? You know, the one that we're in post-production on now is mm-hmm. the one that I was most excited about making. Um, it's a script from the 2018 Blacklist by a young writer named Amanda Adoko. She's a Nigerian woman from the South Bronx who happens to write like one of the Coen brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we got Tate Taylor to direct it and got Alice and Janney to star. Mm-hmm. And I'm just really excited about how What's it's it going to turn out. It's called Breaking News in Yuba County. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't even Alice do the spoil. I mean, she's just incredible. What's um, the plot? I don't, I don't want to spoil okay, it. Right. I don't want to spoil it. But yeah, keep an eye uh, out for breaking news in Yuba Allison County. Anything Janney is in. I That's am. right. She was great um, in Bombshell. I didn't think she came out of nowhere. I was like, what is Alice and Janney doing here? And she um, played that character quite well. As extraordinary of an actress as she is, she may even be a better, more fun person. Oh, like, no, I just can't. Don't I, tell me. It's all true. I, I genuinely can't say enough good things about her. And so I, I think that would be the one. I even um, like her sitcom. I can't even believe that. Really, I actually I don't like I have sitcom. not watched Mom. Watch I, it. I have to not admit bad. it. Um, I mean, you got good talent there. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and then look, the other thing is, like I said, trying to raise a film fund because I. I How much do you need? I'd like to be in the 50 to 100 range. I hear SoftBank's got some money. Uh, probably a little bit. <laughs> they, they, um, they lost a lot in WeWork. They did Maybe indeed. they'll come over. Um, but no, I think, I look, I think we can pick winners. I think we can pick, and they won't all be winners, but across mm-hmm. a large enough slate, I think that we can pick movies that will impact the culture and deliver a return on the investment. Well, and great. at the end of the day, like, it's a pretty good goal. All right, Franklin Leonard. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Frank Leonard of The Blacklist. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Franklin, where can people find you and The Blacklist online? I am at Franklin Leonard on Twitter. Uh, the Blacklist is the B L C K L S T. Also on Instagram, the B-L-C-K-L-S-T, and I'm Franklin J. Leonard on Instagram. Great. If you like this episode, we really appreciate it. If you share it with a friend, make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice or tap a link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Special thanks to Garden of Sound in Los Angeles for hosting us today. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then. 